The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Well, this, as you all already know, if you are regular listeners, and I hope you certainly are, uh, you already know that this is the show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And one way in which the world really works is that uh, people like to stay healthy. People want to stay alive. Our instinct for living is, is strong and powerful, and uh, we are intense about it which is why it is that uh, the health industry is not only huge, but it is also fraught with political tension. And I don't have to go into any more detail. I think everybody knows the whole story of Obamacare in this country. I think people know about the tensions of the healthcare system in Canada that everybody loves, excepting that Canadians who can afford it come to the United States for treatment. That's why it is that uh, in most states that border the Canadian uh, border, that are close to the Canadian border, particularly in populated areas, so like the state of Washington and obviously uh, the state of New York and also uh, in the vicinity of Toronto, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, you will find that there is a constant traffic across the border. And this is true of Canadians coming to private clinics, that's right, private clinics set up in the United States that very seldom treat American citizens. They don't take uh, Medicaid, the Medicare, they don't, they don't work with the government at all. They are private, and they are set up to cater to American citizens, uh, excuse me, to Canadian citizens, which is exactly what they do. Now, all of this was based on uh, the NHS, the National Health Service, that started in England a long time ago, in the 1950s, is when it sort of really got going. And the NHS, the, the National Health Service in England, uh, was set up for exactly the same reason that it was set up elsewhere, which is that it is a way of uh, assuring permanent power for whichever party uh, is seen as the, the promoter of it. Invariably, it is the party that is in favor of socialism. Uh, very much increased taxation, and uh, enormous spending. And, of course, people uh, who do not have a very clear idea of how things work laud this and praise this. And generally speaking, my experience in America is that whenever I've engaged in debates on uh, public health, I've always found that it is people who themselves would never depend on Medicare or Medicaid, who would never depend on government health services, but who are affluent enough to be able to afford private service, they are the ones pushing aggressively for public service for everybody else. Now, one of the ways the world really works is that when you make a commodity available, and uh, it doesn't matter whether it's goods or a service or candy or dollar bills, but wh whatever you make f freely available or close to freely available, uh, the line for it will extend <laughs> to an infinite length. It's like a mathematical rule. When you're giving something away, the, uh, the line will become infinitely long. Now, when you give something away, that's what happens. I have recently been in close touch with uh, medical personnel, both nurses and doctors, who work in emergency rooms in, um, in New York and Nevada and California. And although this is only three states, what I heard uh, is something which apparently, and it's easy to verify, applies to virtually every state, particularly states with certain uh, demographic, disproportionate demographics. Bottom line, what am I talking about? What I'm talking about is that the emergency rooms in most hospitals in many states are completely inundated 
by people who are there using it as their primary care facility. In other words, they get a cough, they get a cold, they're at the emergency room. And, by the way, uh, as far as my New York informers are concerned, uh, they arrive in ambulances. They don't bother to take a cab. They don't use the subway. They call for an ambulance. And the way the system is set up, uh, the, the ambulance doesn't have any way of knowing the urgency of the call, and it is dispatched. These people uh, arrive at the emergency room. They, um, they get treatment for minor ailments, very often absolutely nothing at all, something that, that does not require the enormously complex uh, logistical arrangements of a modern ER or emergency department. And essentially the system is completely and utterly unsustainable. Why do they do that? Well, because many of them uh, do not have a Western culture. Many of them do not have the idea of, I don't want to impose on other people. And uh, they see something available for free, and they use it. And the word gets around, as it already has, and it is already at unsustainable levels. Uh, it's a massive problem. And, you know, as when we talk about uh, medical problems, Believe me, it's, uh, this one is a very, very huge one. And uh, you should be aware of it. You should even check into the emergency rooms in, in your town or city. God forbid you should need it, but you would do well to try and find out in advance which are the emergency rooms in the city that are most susceptible to abuse and overuse uh, by uh, parts of the population and, and find yourself, at least have on your, in your mind which hospital you would use if you had to because there are dif different uh, patterns in different cities depending on the geographic location of the hospital. All of this is uh, obviously a very huge problem. Anyway, it's, it's an, a fundamental principle of economics and of common sense that when you're giving something away, the line becomes inevitable, long, inevitably long. Now, you'll remember that when Obamacare was being instituted in the United States, uh, the cynically named Affordable Care Act, uh, you'll remember that uh, people immediately said that there will be death panels. And although it was a, a clever rhetorical name for what was going to happen, um, a lot of people were turned off and, uh, and the, the left managed to somehow ridicule the notion but it wasn't a ridiculous notion at all. Again, it's very, very simple. It's true with a, a preschool teacher giving out limitless amounts of candy. As soon as some kind of limit makes itself apparent, in other words, we're coming to the end of the box of candy, uh, the, the teacher's going to have to come up with some way to uh, assign the remaining candies because otherwise <laughs> it's just going to be gone. So... Uh, so it is when medical care is being dispensed in this fashion for free, essentially, uh, the demand, of course, goes up. Now, there is an additional problem. I'm not even going to get into that. But if you think about the mathematics of it here, each year, new medical advances mean that more amazing things can be done. But those amazing things that can be done uh, usually come at a very high cost. So when it comes to... Uh, hip and knee joint replacements, when it comes to uh, uh, heart valve replacement, there's remarkable technology. And as these things become technically feasible, then obviously the demand for these things goes up as well. What I'm pointing out, of course, is that uh, we're living in a world of a certain limited amount of cash. This is dependent on how much the government is able to extricate from pliable citizens in the form of taxation. But whatever it is, at least in the United States and in the United Kingdom, because of democracy and because people who are in power like to stay in power and they know that if taxes go beyond a certain point, there will be uh, some kind of rebellion and their, their, their uh, constituents will not return them to office. So they impose certain restrictions. They are not... Uh, strong restrictions, but at some point, the bottom line is however you calculate it, the amount of money that is available to be spent uh, on a country's health care, once it's being paid for by taxes, there is a limit to it. And uh, if you've got a limited commodity 
and a limitless demand for that commodity, which indeed you do have in healthcare, uh, you obviously have to reach a point of rationing. It's perfectly clear. This is, you know, will there be, there have to be uh, systems for deciding who gets medical care and who doesn't. And it's only a matter of time before they'll say, well, people with uh, certain conditions, it's not worth, all we'll be able to do is extend their lives by a small amount or people who are elderly. But there will obviously be a way of determining who is going to get it. And uh, don't be surprised if uh, union employees will have a way of always getting it, but that's another matter. Meanwhile, um, since the National Health Service in England was the uh, pioneer in the Western world of government-supplied health, uh, it's always a good idea to see the pattern of evol evolution in Great Britain because Canada followed it, and all the ills that showed up in Great Britain eventually showed up in Canada 30 or 40 years later, and uh, obviously they are going to show up if, if the uh, Obamacare isn't dramatically ripped out at its roots and replaced, and what it should be replaced with is in itself a major discussion, but uh, in Great Britain, something that's just happened is, and again, it's inevitable, but um, we could have guessed this. The National Health Service is now going to ban patients from surgery indefinitely unless they lose weight or quit smoking. So um, now there may be legal challenges to this. I don't know. But right now, this is what the National Health Service has set up, and that is that people who smoke or people who are deemed to be overweight will not get needed surgery until they stop smoking or lose weight. In other words, this is just a form of rationing. But I want you to think about the nefarious cunning of the system, because sure enough, if you read the comments in the dozens and dozens of different news reports about this recent development in the British national health system, you will find that uh, a large number of the comments are, are approved. Oh, yes, people have to take responsibility for their own health. And yes, it's right, valuable and, and scarce resources like surgery should not be given to people who couldn't care less about that. That's what people say. But they're too dumb to realize that politicians are smarter than they are. And politicians are working with their own lives, with their own power, with their political survival, so they put more thought into how to do this. The average person listens to this and, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What they don't realize is that this is the camel's nose under the tent. And so the politicians seized upon a form of rationing that they could safely assume that many people would support. Most people would agree, yes, that's right, yes. People who are overweight, why, why should, they should stop eating and then we'll give them surgery. Oh, they're smoking when they stop. Sounds good. What these fools don't realize is that as time goes by, once this principle of rationing has been established and this has got through, then the next few items will be introduced. They may have to do with age. Who knows? They may even have to do with political outlook. You know, you will, you will remember an NBC vice president who fortunately lost her job over this, who at the time of the horrific Las Vegas massacre, uh, she said, well, they're Republicans, they deserve to die. What happens if somebody like that is on the National Health Service Committee and says, well, you know, people are conservatives, you know, what do they do to the world? They hurt the environment, they don't care about the poor. So, you know, they will be given, I know it sounds preposterous, but once the principle is established that healthcare has to be rationed in some way, which it obviously has to because you're supplying a limited commodity to people with an unlimited demand, so obviously it's going to have to be rationed, the only thing that has to be determined is the system of rationing. And once we accept the principle that the National Health Service will point fingers at certain groups of people and say, you're not getting a health service, uh, the, 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 the stable door is open and the, ho the horse is out. And uh, we're going to be seeing just, unfortunately, a whole lot more of that happening. Uh, you know, one of the uh, principles of ancient Jewish wisdom is that he who is wise is who the one who can look at the egg and have an idea of what's going to hatch. And it's a poetic way of putting uh, something which is exactly what we're talking about, which is to be able to see the future just a little bit. I don't mean in some 
a mysterious, prophetic kind of a way, although it's, it's an aspect of prophecy, I suppose. But uh, what it means is thinking this through, using the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom, principles of how the world really works, and you will turn out to be foretelling the future in the same way that uh, this, there was nothing in this that smart people didn't already know years ago. And uh, you were probably in that group as well who realized that any time you're giving something away for free and uh, there's a limited amount of it, but the demand for it is unlimited, insatiable, you got a problem. And, and there's going to have to be a system of limiting it. Uh, what is the system of limiting it that I support? What is the method of dealing with this conundrum, uh, the, the, how, uh, how I would recommend? I'll come back with that. But first of all, our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, at rabbidaniellappin.com, one of the things you're going to discover is that there is a special deal on a fantastic resource we have for you. It's called the Genesis Journeys Set, and it comprises four audio CD programs. Each one is about uh, about a little more than two hours of uh, my teaching material that I do not do on the air because uh, on the air I don't go deeply into biblical details, verses, words, principles. But uh, what I do on in the Genesis Journey set is in each of these four programs, I do just that. One of the programs is entitled The Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah. And this is available for, uh, this whole set is available on a very special price for instant download. You don't even have to wait for it to come to you in the mail. You download not only the audio, you also download the, uh, the um, multi-page study guides, and um, uh, you're able to get hold of it right there and then. What sort of things does it deal with? Well, for instance, one of the things it points out is that, uh, that there is such a thing in the world as entropy. We can call it spiritual gravity. What it means is that uh, God built into the world a preference for chaos. What this means is that uh, if all the people left, shall we say, New York City, and there were no people there, uh, it would take only about 150 years for buildings to, be, to start falling. Why would they start falling? Water would seep through the ground. Iron uh, support structures that hold up the roofs of subway tunnels would corrode through. Uh, the streets would start going down. Um, foundations would start uh, sliding and collapsing, and buildings would fall. Uh, it would take, they estimate, about 400 years for all the bridges in York, George Washington Bridge, the Verrazano Bridge, uh, to collapse. The, um, the Brooklyn Bridge might go down a little bit earlier. It's a, it's a very old bridge. But uh, when you stop painting these bridges, they rust in the about. So you could say that within a relatively short space of time, 400 years to be exact, um, it would be difficult if you were flying over where New York City stood on Man the island of Manhattan, it would be hard to see from a low-flying airplane that there was ever a city there. It would be covered by vegetation. There'd be nothing tall standing. There would really be very little sign that human beings were ever there. Uh, it, would e it would be there for archaeologists of a later era to come back and dig and say, hmm, you know, this could have been a very tall building. It might have been 30, 40 stories high. I, they may not even realize just how tall buildings were in uh, 21st century New York City. Anyways, the bottom line is things deteriorate. If you look at a jungle, it never turns into a city, but a city will turn into a jungle. Uh, if you don't maintain by constant energetic input, if you don't maintain your car, uh, it turns into a, a rusty heap of trash. But a rusty heap of trash will never turn into a car. And uh, what we are able to understand from this, including looking at the first few verses of Genesis, that the, the world originally was in a state of upheaval and turmoil and chaos, uh, it's, it's only through very specific input of energy and money that a system is able to be maintained. This is even true for your kid's bedroom, which uh, looks like an unbelievable mess until you take the energy to make sure that you or your child cleans it up. And then, of course, within a week or two, it's back the way it was. Uh, the world tends towards a state of chaos. Well, one of the things we have to understand, and I explain this in um, The Gathering Storm, which is one of the four programs in Genesis Journeys, 
um, is that this applies to uh, social systems of government as well. And understanding some of these principles that are laid out in the gathering storm, you'll be able to see exactly what happens uh, with rising taxes, with the promise of health care, with the deal that a uh, left-tending government promises security in exchange for your taxation. Um, how it is that a society moves from a state of affluence towards a state of socialism, why all of these things happen and how these are a manifestation of the chaos, and ultimately how you can build your own ark, as it were, to protect your family from the storms that swirl turbulently around the foundations of your entire being. Uh, I don't mean a literal boat, but I mean a, a spiritual structure around your family and your assets and your possessions that enable you to ride the inevitable storms that uh, that transpire because chaos is the natural stat state and as people lose contact with the energy form of sustaining societal structure uh, this kind of uh, turbulent chaos is the result anyway all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com take a look at genesis journeys a special half price sale for the for the download version at rabbidaniellappin.com be back with you in just a moment there's still more to come from rabbi daniel lappin on demand on the blaze radio network you want to save money in a place that gives you growth, control, and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax-free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax-free access to use your life insurance while you're alive. Get the free book to find out how. Call 702 660 Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And thank you very much, not only for listening and participating, I also thank you, those of you who've been spreading the word and recommending to other people that they listen to the show. I really appreciate that. And those of you who visit our website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, send me uh, letters writing um, on about past shows or shows you'd like to, I appreciate all the connection with you that we can possibly generate. So uh, thanks so much for all of that. And uh, when we finished the last segment, I said I would uh, talk briefly about uh, an, a, a, an alternative and preferred system ultimately for dealing with the conundrum of healthcare, which is that uh, everybody wants it, everybody wants as much of it as they can possibly have, because people are, are willing to go to great lengths to lengthen their lives, to save their lives, to improve their health, uh, particularly if it comes in the form of outside uh, activity as opposed to internal. In other words, uh, for, uh, for, for all of us, uh, losing weight is very hard uh, for all of us. Uh, exercising aggressively and strenuously and regularly is very hard. Uh, but if we can improve our health or do things by having uh, outside action in the form of medicine or, or medical attention, there, there's no limit to what we want. But obviously, there has to be just in the nat natural order of things, there is a limit to what can be supplied. Uh, the money is limited. It comes from taxes on citizens and corporations, which in itself is not uh, limitless. There comes a point where you kill the goose and uh, you can no more get golden eggs. So uh, that basic conundrum, how, how do we deal with it? Well, uh, it's, it's really very simple, but in order to uh, explain it, what I want to tell you about is um, how very different uh, life seems to be in uh, places like the Gulf states. Now, I've been in Abu Dhabi, I've been in Dubai, I've been in Qatar, and um, and these are extremely viable states. I, I will tell you that they, uh, they upended, visiting some of these places, upended certain parts of my thinking on um, the Islamic world and the Arab people in, in particular. It was very fascinating. Uh, similarly, I've also been in the West Bank. Right? I've been in uh, parts of uh, 
of Israel that are under Palestinian control, and there's a very big difference. Um, there is, uh, well, let me tell you what the main difference is. The main difference is that in Qatar and Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, no matter where you go, you don't see crowds of young males sitting around on the sidewalk or under trees or on balconies. You just don't see it. Everybody is running around. Everybody's busy. There just is no apparent idleness at all. And yet, when you take a look at Arabs on the West Bank, if you take a look at Arabs in Israel, those are them who are not working, but there are a lot of them who are just sitting around. Now, you might ask yourself, uh, well, okay, how does that happen? How do they manage? Like, everyone has to eat. And the answer is that uh, to assuage its guilt and to uh, try and, and generate its fantasy solution to the Middle East, the West, in the form of the United States and Europe and other countries, uh, pump huge amounts of money into, <clears throat> into uh, the Palestinian territories, including Gaza. That money, uh, you know, you might think it goes to building hospitals and schools and promoting education, but, uh, but that is simply not so. And as a matter of fact, um, Arab education in the, um, in the Palestinian areas still includes teaching little kids in grade school about the virtues of killing Jews. Uh, and that, by the way, under the auspices of the United Nations uh, UNESCO program, which gives you a bit of a clue as to one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that uh, President Trump withdrew the United States from UNESCO. And uh, this particular rabbi devoutly hopes that uh, the same president will remove the United States entirely from the United Nations, uh, a total uh, waste of time and money. But at any rate, you might have thought all the money going into uh, the Palestinian areas would be going to education and hospitals and improving lives and building hope. No, it isn't. Uh, a lot of it goes in exactly the same way, by the way, as the American welfare system works, right? Does it really all do good? Does it all provide needed things for hungry and hurting people? No. Uh, it provides indolent lifestyles and multi-generational dysfunction. Well, it's no different. International welfare flowing into the Palestinian areas uh, provides the wherewithal for huge numbers of young males to do nothing. How about in the United States? Have you heard of these community activists? You might have remembered one that reached high office or community organizers. Have you ever wondered who pays those people? Like in your household budget, how many times do you find a line item saying, uh, fees to local community organizer, right? You don't because you don't want a local community organizer. You certainly have no interest in paying a local community organizer or community activist. You're just not interested. Does anybody pay them? Well, yes, through tax money and redistribution through welfare. What it does is provide for large numbers of uh, American males not to have to work. That's right. That's what happens. And so I have a simple question. I ask you, would the world, or if that's too, too large a thing for me to even contemplate, how about the United States? How about your state? Uh, would your state be better or worse if everybody had to work on a solid eight-hour-a-day job in private sector in order to be able to eat or pay rent or put gas in a car or to have a car in the first place? Would that be a better or a worse situation for your state? And I propose to you that beyond any shadow of a doubt, uh, it would be an enormously better state if there were, was no such thing as government money subsidizing indolence, government money subsidizing fake jobs that don't achieve or accomplish anything that nobody actually wants. If that could be achieved, if everybody could, be, could have to work, we'd have a better society. Well, that brings me to uh, the solution, which won't be implemented in the near future, I can assure you. But uh, at least if we had it in mind as even an unattainable ideal, there'd be real value in that. And that is uh, health care you pay for. 
just like you pay for a lot of other things. Yes, you pay for your health care. And as soon as you pull government out of it, and as soon as you allow insurance companies to set up medical insurance just the way they set up car insurance or anything else, where particularly in areas where there is not government interference, right? The government distorts the car insurance market also very badly in many states. But uh, if it could be done, uh, what would happen is some insurance companies would provide um, pregnancy and, uh, and, and childbirth coverage. Others would say, no, we are for people who don't need that. Uh, some insurance companies would cover um, mental health, psychiatric care. Others would say, you know, we're for people who decide they don't need that coverage. And so you'd be able to shop around and you'd be able to buy your own insurance and pay for it with your own money. And guess what? Uh, the cost of medicine would once again get back to normal. And nobody any longer would be billing uh, $94 for three Band-Aids. Yes, that happens. So uh, it would need people to pay. In other words, what I'm really saying here is that uh, money is, after all, the best way to ration goods and services in a society. It really is. Now, are there exceptions? Yeah, there are exceptions at different times. For instance, there was a period when the public education system did a fantastic job. Uh, immigrants were pouring into the United States, mostly from Europe in those days, and uh, uh, the parents worked at low-paying jobs, as is often the case with immigration, and the children went to school. Guess what? Those children worked and studied hard and moved onwards and uh, moved into the American financial mainstream, very often helping their parents on the way. Uh, but the schools did that. Today, the schools aren't doing that. Today, the schools are not serving immigrants. They're certainly not even serving Americans, locally born. Um, it's just a, a bad, bad situation. So I, and, uh, I, I really don't see any particularly valuable role for government in public education. I think it should ideally pull the government out of it. Private education, people pay for it or they don't. Will there be a lost generation? Absolutely. Will there be an entire generation, mostly people today raised in uh, without children who were raised without families, who are raised by television, who are driven by drugs and by sex? That generation is lost, right? They are raising kids. Those kids are not going to be uh, sent to school. There will be a lost generation. There's no question about it, but only one. And things turn around. Uh, you know, you, you cannot, when you try and make things better, here's a general rule. This applies to your business, your marriage, your child raising, your toothache. Uh, when you decide to solve a particular problem, please know right, this is an absolutely inviolable Daniel Lappin rule of how the world really works. Uh, the first, the first, uh, uh, the first uh, re reaction to an attempt to improve a situation is that it deteriorates, it gets worse. You have a mild toothache, and then you go to the dentist, and the next thing is he's poking you with needles and drilling, and you say to yourself, I wish I'd have left it alone. I really was able to live with it, right? This, it wasn't that sore compared to what I'm going through now, unless you dose up with Novocaine, of course. But... Uh, and then when you leave the dentist and the Novocaine wears off, oh, relief. Oh, I'm so pleased I did this. Um, you know, you, you have a small leak or you notice uh, some water running out of your wall somewhere. You call the plumber. And before you know, he's telling you we're going to open up the wall. And you, and you look at it and there's pipes and the drywall is pulled out or now the wet wall. And uh, insulation inside is soaked. And, you, and uh, you think to yourself, you know what, this is, I wish I'd have left things alone. Eventually, when it's all repaired and put together again and replastered and everything's nice and dry, oh, relief, that's great. But the initial impact of any attempt to improve something is um, the appearance of it being much worse. Right. And you can, you can absolutely rely on that. If your marriage has fallen into bad habits and uh, you realize you're headed into a, uh, into a very dangerous direction, you decide you want to repair it. You know, there's no question that the initial impact will be very painful. There will be fighting and yelling and screaming and arguing. You're going to say to yourself, I wish I'd have left well alone. But as you work, okay, 
the uh, current situation of uh, whether it's education or whether it's medicine, it's unsustainable. It's not working. It's a mess. And uh, fixing it is going to have to take place. But the first impact of fixing it is going to be for the situation to be much worse. And uh, it's going to mean there will be a lost generation. There are going to be people we're all going to feel very, very sorry for. And uh, we indeed can and should help those people, the ones we consider worthy, not through a government bureaucracy that is indiscriminate in its distribution of money removed forcibly from hardworking citizens, but uh, faith organizations, churches and synagogues ought to be in charge of uh, distributing succor, help. And uh, you say, can they deal with the huge demand? Well, I can assure you, the demand will vanish when you have to show up at a church and you have to be a participant and do. you'll all of a sudden discover a whole lot of people say, hey, you know what, we don't need that. Uh, and so it is, it'll be like that with medicine as well. Eventually it'll be repaired, but not without pain. Is that politically achievable? I'm, I'm not absolutely sure that it is, which is one of the, the more worrying and pessimistic uh, analyses of the future. But uh, these kinds of demographic predictions are notoriously imprecise. And so I would never say, no, it cannot happen or no, it cannot be improved. After all, everybody who knew anything was absolutely sure that Donald Trump could not be elected. And I happen to belong to uh, that part of the United States of America that believes that we are ever so much better off now than we would have been had we been this far into a Hillary Clinton presidency. Uh, one of the delightful side notes, you may not know this, is that George Soros, that uh, utterly reprehensible Jewish far-left socialist, a funder of every evil pathology there is, uh, George Soros, that financier, um, lost a huge bundle of money uh, going short on stocks. He was absolutely sure Hillary would win. And um, and when Trump won, he decided that obviously the market's going to take a hit. So he sold everything short, absolutely sure that he'd be able to buy it back at a lower price down the road. Well, <laughs> good news uh, turned out not exactly to be that way. Yes, uh, I, no one ever thought that Trump would be able to win. Nobody believed that uh, a Trump presidency would result in improved economic circumstances, including such brilliant people as George Soros. Uh, but you never know. So can this be fixed? Uh, I don't know. But certainly it can only be done by a return to market principles and pulling the government now out of things of which it's made an utter disaster, uh, namely uh, education, health. And um, I'll tell you something else. I'm not too sure about the post office either. Higher and higher costs to mail a letter, worse and worse service as we move along. At any rate, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there because we've got a terrific resource at a very special price, a half-price sale for listeners to the show, and uh, it is called the Genesis Journeys Set. It's made up of four programs. And I told you a little bit about the first one uh, in the uh, earlier segment. I told you about the gathering storm, decoding the secrets of Noah, right? Um, what I'll tell you now, just a, a, a brief look at the second program in this set of four audio programs, along with study guides, which, by the way, you can download, and that's where the discount is. Um, so here's, here's an interesting thing. Um, you know, you might remember that, and I, I speak about much more lengthily in, uh, in, in the program called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. That's one of the four programs in the set. Um, you remember when Palestinian terrorist Yasser Arafat was invited to address the United Nations Security Council in November 1974? Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but if you did, you'd know that he arrived at the United Nations wearing a pistol on his hip. Now, it's amazing, right? New York police who don't, I mean, they allow nobody to walk around armed in New York. They stepped aside. They didn't say anything. The United Nations security people let him in. This is unbelievable. An organization priding itself on its purpose of bringing peace uh, actually allowed a Palestinian terrorist to walk into the United Nations wearing a pistol on his belt. Uh, before his speech, 
they did ask him to take out the pistol, but he, he did. But he kept the holster and very conspicuously and ostentatiously demonstrated it during his speech. Now, what's all that about? And I'm, I wanted to explain that there's a certain cultural thing here. Um, how about if I tell you about uh, one of my daughters got married a little while ago, and, and you know, it was a big celebration and, and really absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, you know, the stuff about, uh, um, uh, you know, you don't worry, you're not losing a daughter, you're gaining a son. Eh, I don't know about that. You know, some young stripling who's uh, just recently started shaving uh, comes along and rips your daughter out from the bosom of your family. So obviously I had mixed feelings, you know, you get it. But um, also, you know, I was filled with joy at a family celebration. So, you know, what did I do? So what I did is I uh, grabbed me my trusty uh, Mini 14 Ruger uh, High Velocity 223 rifle, and I encouraged all my friends who were there to uh, join in the celebration and take out their Rugers also. And we all expressed our joy and our gratitude to God by firing hundreds of live rounds up in the air. Um, you know, obviously it was inevitable that several guests were instantly killed when those projectiles fell back to earth. But gosh, it was some wedding. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Well, uh, you know, that's how many Arab weddings are celebrated. Um, so what I'm, the point I'm making is that there is something about weapons in uh, Arabic culture, and we have to understand it. Where does it come from? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, this this last summer I was boating in British Columbia with a family, as, as I'm usually blessed to be able to do. And uh, we're about, um, I don't know, you know, we're uh, about a, a half a mile, maybe a bit more from the dock. And uh, my daughter says that, how far are we from the dock? And I would answer and say, oh, uh, you know, it's about the range of a, a round fired from my 223 rifle that I uh, that I fired off at your wedding. You know, she'd look at me and say, couldn't you just like tell me it's a mile or half a mile? Couldn't you just do that? Or how about I'm waiting at San Francisco airport for, for a flight when, when a young lady lugging too much uh, carry-on baggage sort of trots by and she says to me, do you know how far it is to the sea concourse? Sure, I say. It's about the range of a three fifty seven Magnum revolver round fired from a six-inch barrel. You know, normal people don't talk like that, okay? But if you take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 21, uh, Ishmael's mother uh, puts her son down. She assumes he's going to die. I'm not going to tell you the whole story now, but I, I do much more of this in the program, The Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. And she goes and sits down away off, and the Bible says she sits away about the distance of a bow shot. And again, this is really peculiar. And uh, sure enough, it turns out that uh, the verse very soon tells us that the baby lived and he grew up and he became an archer. Okay? Uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. Weapons are intrin an intrinsic part of Arab culture. And at the, mo I'm not, at the moment, I'm not judging good or bad or anything else. I'm just saying there's, there's a very simple fact. And when you understand certain realities about how the world really works and uh, what different cultures really are and what culture works and which cultures don't work, um, it enables you to function much more effectively in your own life. And so this would be um, a, a great program. It's one quarter of the Genesis Journey set, which is for sale on discount for the download at rabbidaniellappin.com. Read about it. You'll get more of a sense of whether this is something that could enhance the life of your family, and I, I think it probably could. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break. Be back with you in just one moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, the, the point I've been trying to make along today's show is that uh, as much as well-intentioned people revile money, demonize money, uh, regard it 
in as anything from the work of the devil to uh, that which um, drags people towards greed and avarice. There are, and unfortunately, by the way, religion has done its fair share. Now, I believe that uh, certainly speaking for Judaism, whilst there are strains within Judaism, particularly in the uh, in the 19th and early 20th century in Eastern Europe, there were ascetic strains uh, of of Judaism that uh, that did join in with this idea that somehow making money is evil and one should turn one's back on that and that poverty is virtuous. Uh, I cannot adequately emphasize how uh, at odds this is with uh, normative Jewish thinking based on the Bible and based on ancient Jewish wisdom. One of the reasons that Jews have always been disproportionately successful with money is precisely because we are not handicapped by the feeling that in trying to make money, uh, we are allowing the more evil side of our beings to triumph. We're not handicapped by believing that making money is just another way of hurting other people. And by, um, by freeing ourselves from, uh, from that uh, negative viewpoint and realizing that the only way to make money is by serving your fellow human beings, when that uh, discovery penetrates your soul and becomes part of your being, uh, you unleash economic creativity that, that other people don't have. Uh, but nonetheless, this, uh, this, it, it's an uphill fight, and the notion that people should all be making money and that uh, there shouldn't be any people who are on government payroll. I mean, right, the, these are very complicated areas, and I'm not making public policy as much as I'm suggesting philosophically alternative ways of organizing society. But uh, certainly when it comes to money, to determine uh, how to uh, assign scarce resources, whether it's bread or money or Mercedes-Benz automobiles, sorry, not many, whether it's bread or healthcare or uh, luxury automobiles, the only reliable way to do it, for all its weaknesses, if you like, is money. And the example uh, that I like giving is the idea of how would you distribute, let's say, um, and I've, I've often used the state of Washington where I lived for uh, an example where you know, a lot of people want waterfront property on a lake. How, much, how many houses? Let's say there are 500 houses on the lake, but there's 5 million people in the state. And so there really are like 10,000 people wanting every single house. We've got to find a way of distributing those houses. Now, today we're very accustomed to the solution, but the solution is hated and reviled and uh, movements on the left in entertainment, academia, and yes, even in politics – are pushing aggressively for reducing the impact of money. So is that, and one of the things that bothers them intensely is this notion that uh, people who've been more successful making money will get better medical care than people who haven't. Uh, in spite of the fact that people who've been more successful making money get better housing, better transport, better vacations, better food than people who are not. But somehow uh, politicians have realized that medical care is something that they can ride the wave of in order to lock in their power and perpetuate their power. So um, uh, how, how could you determine how to apportion uh, out the only 500 houses on the waterfront? And uh, the answer is that one way of doing it is that we could have a lottery, right? The way that uh, many things in society today, states uh, subsidize and organize lotteries as a form of, I call it taxation on foolish people. But um, we could have a lottery and give the people uh, their uh, property by lottery. And like, you know, every year or two we could redo the lottery and so that way people get turns. And if you've won uh, one of the waterfront houses, then you're banned from future lotteries. But you see the flaw flaws and drawbacks in that. Uh, 
Another way is force. Now, there are many parts of the world in which real estate is apportioned by force. So what happens is you pick out the house you like, you build up a gang of your cohorts, and you go and throw out the occupants, kill them if necessary, and then you take over the house. Now, the only drawback there is you have to maintain your gang or your little army to make sure nobody else comes and tries and takes it away from you. And yes, there are many parts of the world today where that is exactly how real estate is transferred. Um, a third way is to have a bureaucrats assign it, right? We could have committees made up of politicians and academics, and they would determine who would get it. Uh, would there be corruption? Would their cronies get it? Sure, but that is how it works in particularly communist regimes, Cuba, uh, the old Soviet Union, maybe even the, the new Russia. But yes, uh, when things are done by bureaucrats, then there is corruption invariably. But it's certainly one of the possible ways of distributing uh, the waterfront houses. A fourth way would be to say, you know what, everybody deserves them. Let's take all the waterfront houses and turn them into a big park so that all the citizens can come and enjoy the waterfront. And the only problem with that is that it postpones the question. It doesn't get away with it because the next question is, well, what should we do with the houses facing the park? Because now these houses not only have waterfront views, but they also have a park in front of them. So how do we distribute those houses? And we're back to the original question. The fifth and final way of distributing those properties is with something called money. We allow everybody to bid how much it's worth to them of their money. How do you get money? By exploiting, by exploiting your time and your skill and your energies and your hard work and your diligence, and, and that's how you make money. Basically, I'm in favor of that. I can see all the flaws, but I like it better than the other four ways of distributing real estate. And the added advantage of this is that it incentivizes everybody to make money. And you know what? When everybody's making money, what they're actually busy doing is trying to improve their own lives. And that is good for society. Um, you know, an optimistic way of looking at it is to say that, and people are going to realize this, and uh, things are going to move forward, and, and, and it, we're going to progress towards a better and better world. Uh, there have even been books, um, I think Steven Pinker, if I'm not mistaken, wrote a book saying, oh, how wonderful it is, violence is diminishing, we're living in the best time of history. Look, he's a smart guy, but he's wrong on that. It's, it's a blip, and the notion that we're on an irreversible journey of progress towards better times, history doesn't affirm that in any way whatsoever. I was at, a, um, at an occasion in Jerusalem where there were some extremely smart people sitting around the table, and uh, and I must say it was it was humbling because these were very very bright people. Uh, I'd say most of them were smarter than I was. I only had one advantage and only one reason for why I was invited and I was there. Not because I was as smart as everyone else there, but because I had access to ancient Jewish wisdom. And wisdom is very different from smarts. In other words, you can have a very good brain. You can be a brilliant programmer. You can even be a good business professional, but know nothing about history. And if you don't know the difference between Hitler and Napoleon, and you literally have no understanding of history, then you really don't have any kind of lantern to guide the way to the future, because the studying of history is crucially important. It's one of the reasons that a society that wants to produce little socialist uh, uh, blocks that will fit into the socioeconomic structure that socialist visions dreams of for society what they do in schools is make sure the kids do not learn history and that's exactly what's happened in the united states of america the only history your children are learning in elementary school and middle school and even into high school the only history they're learning is anti-colonial how wicked the west is and particularly how bad the united states is what we did to this group or that group or the other group you they do not hear at all the part of history that would reveal what an incredible moment in history is the United States for whatever flaws you want to talk about. They are shielded from that kind of knowledge. History allows people to understand where we are and where we're going. So I always say it's like navigation. You don't stand a chance navigating your boat across an ocean if you don't have a starting point. Right? If you have amnesia, you wake up, you're in the middle of an ocean, you've got a chart, no GPS, 
you can't navigate because you don't know the starting point. You have no idea where you are. But if you know your starting point and you know your direction of travel and you know your speed of travel, why, what a difference that makes. You can really make progress. And that's really uh, what we're doing over here. The idea is no history makes you unwise, no matter how smart you are. And so at this meeting, one of the very smartest people at the table said, I am absolutely sure that we have moved towards a time of goodness where the majority of people are good. More and more people are getting gooder and gooder and gooder instead of better and better and better. Uh, He said violence is diminishing, dishonesty, everything is moving forward. Now, he's a very optimistic guy, as it happens, not only bright but also optimistic. Is he a wise person? Well, uh, probably not, and I think that uh, events will eventually unfold that that prove that that notion is not true. But for many, many years, it was considered – it was very popular. We loved the idea of believing in progress. Everything was progressing, everything moving towards a better future. And um, it's uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, – well, actually, I wonder if I can play this. I should really do a better sound version of this, but – There was something years and years ago, long before President Reagan was president, long before he was uh, even governor of California, he was a very well-known actor. And he used to host on television the General Electric Theater. Was it television or radio? You know, I'm not sure. I I think it was television, but it might have been radio. We're talking about GE Theater, it was called General Electric Theater, 1950s. And... uh, Here's Ronald Reagan introducing, and I want you to hear a special phrase he uses. I'm sorry about the, the quality. Um, I should have uh, done a better quality on this, but uh, I think it'll do for the moment. For General Electric, here is Ronald Reagan. Good evening. Tonight, John Forsyth stars on the General Electric Theater. And you will see product reports that show how in the things that lead to a better life for us all... At General Electric, progress is our most important product. You get it? At General Electric, progress is our most important product. And uh, and that really is something that uh, a lot of people do believe, that progress is inevitable, that progress is happening ordinarily, just in the ordinary scheme of things, and everything's fine. And so many of us are blessedly shielded from not only the sheer evil of the past. I'm not, I mean, even think about World War II and the sheer evil of the Nazis. But how many of us really know what happened in Cambodia with Pol Pot? How many of us know what, um, uh, what Mao Zedong did to the Chinese people? The murder, the torture of millions of people in the 50s. Uh, or how about how about before that what Stalin did probably to 30 million Russians is my best estimate based on the historians that I rely on um, how many of us know about that how much many of us even understand what it meant to go through the depression in the United States of America or um, or what it was like before there was a polio vaccine how many of us know what these things mean we we've lost the sense of what evil really is all about. We've just forgotten. And the the danger of that is that we become a society ill-equipped to deal with evil. And that is a really enormous problem. Uh, I'm going to be talking about that in future shows in the weeks ahead and um, what the problem is and what can be done about it, both in terms of yourself those closest to you in family and uh, and social connections, and uh, and how we how we get a better sense of where things could be headed. It's not hard to look at Europe today and say this kind of upheaval, this kind of explosion of destructive evil, was so incomprehensible in 1965 in 1960, in 1958, where progress is... Who would have dreamed of a day when women in Sweden or women in Germany couldn't walk in public? And, you know, we worry about Harvey Weinstein. But um, who's really worrying about the frighteningly similar path that the left has put America on as we journey in this frightening direction? towards socialism and uh, the chaos 
alerted to uh, alert uh, in, uh, that uh, that the first few verses in Genesis alert us to. Um, the um, and it's not only that, by the way. I have a resource called uh, Genesis Journeys. It's made up of four teachings. One of them is uh, Clash of Destiny, decoding the secrets of Israel and Islam. One of them is about marriage. One of them is uh, about decoding the secrets of Noah, the gathering storm, which I think is really one of the most significant ones for the times we're in. But one is also called Tower of Power, decoding the secrets of Babel. And you think to yourself, who really cares about nine verses at the beginning of chapter 11 in Genesis? But I'll tell you, the answer is that uh, that we all should. Anyone who's been to New York um, knows an address, 200 Park Avenue. If you don't even know the address, you know the building because it's – I think it's still the MetLife building. But it was started off in 1963 when it was built as the Pan Am building. Now – Pan Am Airlines had started in 1927, and they owned air travel. Pan Am was like Pan American, right? It was the it was as close as you could come to a national airline in America. Pan Am, this this was the airline. I mean, everybody wanted to travel on on Pan Am, and they built uh, what was at the time the biggest commercial office building in the whole world, and it towered over everything. Here's the funny thing. If you look at a graph of Pan Am's share price and you study the fortunes of the company, you can actually pinpoint the decline of Pan Am to the moment that its new building opened in the heart of Manhattan. Now, that would just be a coincidence if it, if it wasn't for the fact that um, Deutsche Bank, the German bank in uh, 99 or 2000, did a, an amazing study that shows that company after company after company seem to be cursed with a decline, very often a fatal decline, that strikes them as soon as they build tall buildings for headquarters. <laughs> and it, it's, really, it's really quite fascinating. Uh, in 1875, at the southern tip of Manhattan, Western Union built a grand, huge headquarters. It was so big and so brightly lit that at night it served as a beacon for ships entering New York Harbor. One year after the building opened, somebody knocked on the door of the chairman. It was Alexander Graham Bell. He just invented something called a telephone. And the head of General of Western Union, his name was William Orton, by the way. Uh, we don't remember his name. We do remember Alexander Graham Bell's name. Um, he told Bell that he couldn't really see any interest in the telephone. People were perfectly happy with the telegraph, which Western Union dominated. And... Um, Alexander Graham Bell said, look, I've got this fantastic thing called the telephone. People communicate instead of with doshes and dashes with voice. Uh, I just don't have the money to develop this and market this thing. And William Orton turned it down. He says, this, these are his words, by the way, this thing you call a telephone, it's got too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as means of communication. So um, Bell said, okay, fine. If you don't want to do it, I'll do it myself. So he started a little company called AT&T. And uh, you know the story. But here's the funny thing. The sequel is that um, a century later, uh, AT&T built a huge New York headquarters, a massive building, a huge skyscraper designed by uh, the celebrity architect Philip Johnson. And everyone said the scooped roof looked like a a little bit like a headstone on a grave, uh, which perhaps wasn't altogether inappropriate because uh, at the moment the AT&T moved into their brand-new building, a man called Judge Green issued a ruling that called for the split-up of AT&T. And uh, Charles Brown, the head of AT&T at the time, just moved into his new office on the top of the uh, gravestone building, and he had to decide, according to the judge's ruling, whether AT&T should keep long distance or they should keep the baby bells, which provide that sort of last mile of connection to every home in America. And just after building this huge edifice, Charles Brown said, well, why don't we keep long distance? Well, I think you all know what happened. And so, you know, the story goes on and on and on and on. Chicago uh, launched its Sears Tower in 1973. And the chairman of Sears in 73 was a man called Gordon Metcalf. And he said that the opening of this 110-story skyscraper, which I'm sure many of you have seen close to the shore of of, uh, the lake, Quote, being the largest retailer in the world, we should, have, we should have the largest headquarters in the world. And he was completely oblivious to the fact that Sears was already feeling the presence of retailers like Kmart and Penny. 
and let alone the internet, which hadn't shown up in 73. Bottom line is, as the Sears Tower in Chicago opened, Sears stock began a decline from which it's never recovered. And there's plenty more examples like that. I talk about a lot of them in Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel in this, this set. So uh, I want you to go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and I think you will find that this incredibly um, reduced price for the series, Genesis Journeys, comprising the four programs. It's uh, over eight hours of teaching that I don't do on the radio, and um, along with four study guides, uh, all of this you can download, by the way, right away at a very cheap price, inexpensive price. You're not supposed to say cheap, right, because that conjures up a, a picture of valueless, shoddy merchandise, which this is most certainly not. But uh, anyway, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Take a look at um, the product uh, entitled uh, Genesis Journeys, and uh, I think you'll find this is probably something that would give you literally months and months and months of substantive, valuable conversation with your friends, with your family. It gives you points and insights to discuss. Even more than that, it gives you principles of how the world really works that you can apply in your life to make sure that you know exactly what's going on and, perhaps more importantly, what it is that's coming down the pike next uh, for you to confront and the challenges for you to triumph and uh, dominate and defeat. Well, that's as far as we're going to go for today's show. I am your rabbi. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. Uh, and um, I'm saying to you, till next week, God bless. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.